Good day, and thanks for joining us for our corn and soybean update on the respect to the corn and soybean outlook. I'm Jim Mintert, director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today are my colleagues, Dr. Nathan Thompson, who's an associate professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics, and Michael Langemeyer, who's a professor uh, in Ag Econ and also the associate director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture. So we're having our webinar today in light of the fact that earlier this week, USDA released updated world ag supply demand estimates. Um, and so we thought we'd walk through some of that and some of the other aspects that are influencing the corn and soybean outlook. So let's just kind of summarize some of the information on the corn side. Some changes on the U.S. corn balance sheet for the 2020 crop year. USDA increased feed usage by about 25 million bushels. No change in projected exports of corn. No change in projected ethanol usage of corn for the 2020 crop year. Um, that wound up reducing the projected carryover by about 25 million bushels to a total of about 1.08 billion bushels. That's about 7.4% of usage. So still a pretty tight carryover situation from the 2020 to the 2021 crop year. They did raise the marketing year average corn price estimate by a nickel to 440, and that's simply reflecting the relatively strong prices we've had this, this spring so far and early summer. Looking at the 2021 corn balance sheet, they raised a production estimate by 175 million bushels, and that simply reflected the acreage coming out of the June 30th acreage report. There's no change in the yield estimate. USDA won't be updating their yield estimate till next month. Um, no change in projected ethanol usage. That's still standing at about 5.2 billion bushels. They did raise projected exports for the 2021 crop year by 50 million bushels. That puts it at 2.5 billion bushels. Uh, that's still about 12% below the 2020 estimate, reflecting expectations for some smaller exports going to China primarily. Um, they raised projected ending stocks at the end of the 2021 marketing year to 1.43 billion bushels. That's about 75 million bushels more than on their June report. Um, ending stocks at the end of the 2021 marketing year are projected to be just a little below 10%, 9.6% of usage. On the world side, they reduced Brazil's current production in the current year by about 5.5 million metric tons, but simultaneously raised the estimate of Argentina's production by about 1.5 million metric tons compared to their estimates from a month ago. Um, no change in China's expected imports from all sources uh, compared to the June estimates that they published just uh, in mid-June. Um, it's always interesting, I think, to come back and look at the corn ending stocks forecast for the 2020 crop year month by month that have been published by USDA. And of course, going back to last June, USDA was forecasting a carryover from the 2020 crop into the 2021 crop year of about 3.3 billion bushels. That was coming down somewhat over the course of the summer, dropped sharply as we headed into the fall and into the winter months. And I think, you know, one of the surprises maybe for us, uh, Nathan, was the fact that you know, you look back at January, February, and March, and we were kind of hovering at about that 1.5 billion bushel expected carryover. And we kind of thought we were done at that point, that that sure. was probably going to be the final forecast. But it has kept coming down, and now we're just barely above a billion bushels. So, you know, you think about the strength we saw in corn prices this spring, uh, a chunk of that's related to the fact that producing that carryover by over 400 million bushels compared to what we thought we were going to get back in March, right? That's right. I mean, prices have kind of just been on a wild ride uh, since last fall, and, and this chart really explains a lot of what's driving that fundamentally. Um, if you look at ending stocks as a percentage of usage, which is a nice way to scale ending stocks so you can look at it over a longer time frame, you can see that we're still pretty tight by historical standards. Uh, ending stocks this year, just above 7% uh, coming into the 2021 marketing year. 
You go back to 2012, that's really the last time we saw ending stocks at that 7% level. Uh, 2011, we were at 8%. 2013, we were at 9%. If you look at 2021, we're still only projecting a, roughly in, in round numbers about a 10% carryover. So even with a rebound here in, in production in 2021, um, it looks like a relatively tight carryover into the 2021 marketing year. The wild card, of course, continues to be what's going to take place with respect to yields, and we'll talk more about that in just a bit. Um, if you look on the world side, uh, world corn stocks to use ratios have come down substantially over the last five years. Uh, 2016 crop year, we were at 33% uh, carryover on a worldwide basis. We're down to about 24%, just a little over 24% this year. A small increase projected for the 21 crop year to about 25%. If you look at this month's numbers versus last month, um, world stocks estimates outside China were estimated to be about 1% below where they were just a month earlier. So maybe just a little bit of tightening on the, on the world side, uh, particularly when you look at it outside China. A, a lot of interest in what's taking place with respect to exports, particularly as we get to the end of the marketing year. Uh, those weekly exports, uh, looking at uh, exports through the end of June, the various marketing years going back to 2015, you can kind of see how things compare. This year, we're at about 81% of USDA's projected export total. Uh, this time last year, we were at about 77% of their projected export total. And you look at some of the prior years, we've been ranging from about 73 to maybe 84%. So if you look at it from that perspective, Odds are pretty good that we're probably going to hit the export target, uh, but not likely to exceed it at this, at this stage. And then if you look at our exports to China versus exports to all destinations, you know, the strength in exports this year has really come about because of China's pretty radical change in their import policy, importing so far this year almost 700 million bushels out of the 2.3 billion bushels that you, we've exported so far this marketing year. Um, that leaves us... Uh, total corn exports up about 68% compared to last year, and those increase in exports to China really accounts for almost three-fourths, 72% of that increase. And still a question mark as to what's going to happen the rest of the summer. What will China do um, over the rest of the summer? Michael, you know, I know you've looked at that in, in the past. Well, certainly uh, corn production in China is very important, and, and corn stocks. It's, uh, we've talked about that uh, previously. It's very difficult to get a handle on actual corn stocks in China, and so that's going to be important, particularly for this year's crop, uh, to see what, how large their crop's going to be. Uh, and then how, how fast their, their pork industry is, is, in, is uh, increasing or getting back to where it was uh, you know, previously. And so, and so those are all wild cards related to uh, corn imports to China. Yeah, there's a lot of interest in what's taking place in the swine industry in China. There's reports this week talking about China liberalizing policy a little bit to encourage small farmers to rebuild their hog herd. They're clearly trying to rebuild pork supplies domestically, and so that continues to be of interest and really is going to be a determinant of what happens with respect to corn exports from the U.S. to China next year. So that's still up in the air in terms of what's going to happen. Uh, the other question mark is what's going on in the ethanol market. Um, Interesting development here these last couple of months, looking at the monthly averages. This is coming out of Nebraska Energy Statistics, so where they track monthly averages for both ethanol prices and unleaded gasoline prices. Ethanol prices the last couple of months have actually gone above unleaded gasoline prices, and that's rare, right? Uh, normally you think of ethanol being blended in and helping pull down uh, the blended price of, of gasoline that uh, retailers are, are able to sell to consumers. That's not been the case recently. Um, very interesting development. If you look at the ethanol plant margins, this is coming out of some data from Iowa State University where they track 
ethanol plant operating margins uh, above variable cost uh, going back on a daily basis, and I've got a chart here going back to, to September of 19, uh, 2019, you can see how those margins have really narrowed in, in the last, uh, what, six or eight weeks. Uh, going back to early May, we had some really positive margins in the ethanol sector, um, about 60 cents per gallon or better. Uh, more recently, those margins have been between about 10 and maybe 20 cents per gallon. Most recent data that we had was actually 15 cents. So still positive, despite the fact that those ethanol prices have moved above gasoline prices, but clearly those ethanol margins are under some pressure. And that kind of leads you to be a little bit concerned about where ethanol production might be headed here this summer. However, if you look at the weekly data, uh, going back not compared to last year, but rather to 2019, to, so to get an idea as to what's happened to ethanol production in the pre, uh, today versus the pre-pandemic era, um, this most recent data, the very last week of, of uh, June, ethanol production actually rose above the same week in 2019. That's the first time that's happened uh, going back to the start of the pandemic. So that's actually a positive sign with respect to corn usage going in ethanol the rest of the summer. Um, but that is a little bit of a wild card with respect to what we might use here over the, 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 next, uh, the next several months, actually. Um, we mentioned yields. And Michael, I know you've taken a look at this. Um, the drought monitor, and, and we have to kind of caution our viewers, the drought monitor, an, an updated one will yeah. come out tomorrow. So this is still last week's drought monitor. Um, but it suggests that we've still got problems in North Dakota, South Dakota, um, spilling over into chunks of Iowa and a good bit of Minnesota as well. Yeah, when you look at the crop conditions, which we'll look at a little closer uh, for Indiana and the 18 states, but when you look at crop conditions uh, for corn and soybeans for that matter, in North Dakota, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota, uh, the percentage, percentage of the crop rated uh, good or excellent is very, very low uh, compared to the average for the rest of the states in the U.S. Uh, if, if, for example, uh, the, the average for, for the U.S. has been running about 65% good to excellent for corn. Uh, in, in Minnesota, it's about 40%. Uh, good to excellent, and North and South Dakota, 35% good to excellent. Very low numbers compared to the, re the rest of the country. And as you, uh, as, you, as you indicated, Jim, these are very important corn states. Uh, Minnesota is, is, is estimated to, have to plant 8 million acres of corn this year. Uh, you know, roughly 9% of total U.S. acreage. Uh, North and South Dakota are also big uh, players uh, in, in terms of corn production, close to 10% of corn production. So you've got 19% of corn production in states with very low uh, good to excellent ratings for corn. Yeah, and so, I, you know, I, in very large percentages on the soybean side, too. And we have to caution because we know there's been some moisture since this last drought monitor uh, was posted last Thursday. So... Their question mark is how much fell and how widespread it was, and it's a little unclear at this stage as to how much alleviation of the drought conditions we've had. But you know, we were talking about this before, Michael, and you kind of pointed out that on the corn side particularly, even moisture now doesn't completely solve the problem, right? Yeah, and even if you get some moisture now, you're not going to go from 35 to 40 percent all of a sudden to a great crop. Uh, and so that's that's the point that's important to point out is you you're, you're going to see some lower yields in those regions very likely. Yeah, some damage has been done, especially in the Dakotas. Uh, maybe not so much in Iowa. That's a little less clear, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that that shakes out. So I'd encourage your listeners to pay attention to the drought monitor when it gets updated tomorrow. 
You've taken a look at the vegetation Yeah, as another well. way of looking at that, this is uh, the, US, the WASDE report uh, uh, presents USDA vegetation health index, uh, and, and green and, and blue means that the, the plant is pretty healthy, and, and red and orange, not so healthy. And as you'd expect, very similar to the drought monitor, North and South Dakota, particularly that eastern part, uh, that, that's heavy corn soybean region, but also Minnesota, where there's a lot of corn, uh, is orange or red. Uh, whereas you get into, when you get into southern Iowa, at least the southern half of Iowa, most of Illinois, Indiana, um, uh, most of Ohio and Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, they're more green and blue. And so certainly from a vegeta vegetation health index, it's that region, uh, North, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota. Yeah, our part of the Corn Belt here in Indiana and, and much of the Eastern Corn Belt and really the Central Corn Belt has actually been in pretty good shape with respect to moisture. Missouri has been yeah. overly wet. Parts of Illinois maybe have been overly wet as well, but nevertheless, certainly not suffering and, from and drought. And the northern half of Iowa, that's where, the, that's where it shows up in the drought monitor too. The northern half of Iowa, it's a little bit uncertain yet uh, what that, that crop's going to be. It's not, it not quite uh, as good looking in terms of the vegetative health index as southern, uh, southern uh, Iowa. You took a closer look at those yeah, crop looking conditions. Yeah, at the percentage of corn ranked good and excellent uh, for our Indiana viewers. Uh, corn in Indiana looks pretty good. Uh, uh, right now, uh, good to excellent for the, for the latest data uh, for the week ending July 11th was 73% uh, ranked good and excellent with very, very small percentages in that poor and very poor. And so most of the remainder is in the fair category. That's very positive. You compare to the five-year average, is only 59%. Uh, for this time of year for Indiana. And we've got to remember, though, that we have 2019 in there, and that 2019 was not, was not very good. And so uh, we've got that average in that five-year average. Uh, I also want to point out that Indiana is better than the 18 major states. But uh, you've got, you got to remember North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota are in those 18 major states. And so, and Iowa's a little lower than Indiana, too. Uh, but so Indiana, the, the, the percentage of corn ranked good and excellent is, is, is looking really good. Uh, compared to the five-year average and, and, and the rest of the country. So we've made a case for the markets paying close attention to weather patterns the next few weeks with respect to identifying what the yield prospects really are. And they're going to pay very close attention to what's going on in the Dakotas, Minnesota, and Iowa in particular, because those have been the trouble spots, right? Yeah, and every, every week we get the crop progress report. I, I'm, they're going to be looking at that very closely uh, to see what the crop progress report uh, is for that, that, that Northern Plains, Minnesota region. Crop progress reports and the six to 10 day forecast are gonna be the, the words to live by, I think, the next few weeks. So, um, Nathan, you've taken a look at what's going on in corn basis here in, in Indiana in particular and around the Corn Belt. Yeah, so just kind of taking a look at what's been going on with basis. Here, we're looking at uh, corn basis for central Indiana. Uh, and we're looking at the three-year average, and I'm specifically looking at basis for the whole crop marketing year relative to September corn futures, so September of, of 21 corn futures. And so this chart comes from the Center for Commercial Agriculture's crop basis tool, which is available on the, the Center for Com Commercial Agriculture's uh, website. And so just a little bit of context here. So the, the blue line that you see there is that historical average, right? So that's the historical three-year average uh, corn basis, uh, the, the uh, most recent three crop marketing years. And then the black line is what's happened throughout this crop marketing year. So starting in the fall of 2020 through uh, current um, the current time. And so really what I want to focus on is what's really been happening here the last two or three months uh, with respect to basis. And so we've, we've had strong basis um, throughout the crop marketing year uh, and, and really saw a lot of strength there in May as there was some uncertainty about acreage. Um, and uh, you know, that has kind of leveled off and we even saw a little bit of a dip there in June. 
But relatively speaking, right, basis continues to be pretty strong for corn, uh, at least here in central Indiana where, where we're looking at. Um, maybe down in that uh, 30 to 40 cent range compared to where it was in May. But, you know, given how high it is, that's really not that big of a, a dip. And so, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, what corn basis might be here over the next several months uh, in previous webinars. And it's really getting harder and harder to kind of know what's going on here. Um, as you think about, you know, how late we are in, in the marketing year. Uh, and, and like you said, weather is going to really play a big factor here as we think about um, what's going on as well as what's going on uh, down in Brazil. And, and you've taken a look at this from a research standpoint uh, over the last, really the last three decades. And we're in the time of year when forecasting basis is really hard. That's right. It's uh, extremely variable this in July and August, right? That's right. I mean, even going back into May, it can be quite hard to kind of predict. that. Once we get to the point where we start thinking about new crop, right? And so in that May, June, uh, into the summer months, uh, it, it just becomes much more volatile, right? Bases kind of can tend to go one way or the other depending on what's going on in the market. And so, yeah, it, it can really bounce around a lot in, in, you know, one direction and the other very quickly based on the information that the market presents. So the other thing that we've been looking at that I think is useful and kind of ties into to some of the charts that you showed pre previously as it relates to kind of corn uh, demand side of things is ethanol plant basis. And so for folks that have kind of followed along with the, the webinars from month to month, I've been showing this chart, but this one looks a little bit different. Uh, and the reason is, again, as we move in kind of to the latter part of the marketing year, previously I have been showing this on kind of a nearby basis. Um, Calculation in here, I've calculated basis again relative to that September uh, futures contract for the entire crop marketing year for each of the years that are up here. So, you know, if, if for some reason you were to go back and look at the previous charts, you might say this looks a, you know, slightly different, and that's kind of the reason why. But uh, the trends really are the same, and, and the information that you get out of it is, is kind of interesting, right? So, again, just for some perspective here, we've got several lines. The blue line is kind of the 2015 to 2017 average ethanol plant basis for the state of Indiana. I just aggregate everything together to kind of get a, a general sense for what's going on there. Uh, and the reason that that's kind of serves that 20 to 15, 17, uh, 2015 to 2017 average serves as a, a little bit of a baseline, a normal, so to speak. Uh, and uh, the reason those are the three years that are normal is there's been several kind of odd or, or kind of um, unusual years here over the last several years as it relates to uh, what's going on with, with uh, uh, corn basis and as it relates to ethanol demand for corn. And so, you know, 2018, 2019, we see at the end of the crop marketing year, basis really uh, got hot. Uh, and that had to do with planting conditions in the spring of 2019 and, and the, the demand for, for corn from ethanol plants, not knowing what the crop was going to look like in the fall. Uh, then we see the red line there, that's 2019, 2020. We know we had the, the pandemic and the huge impact that that had on gasoline demand and, and thus ethanol. So we see this big dip uh, in base, uh, corn basis there uh, in the, the spring of 2020. And then the black line is what's going on this year. And so you can see there's been this kind of just really steady strengthening uh, of basis. And if you go back to the beginning of this year, the beginning of 2021, we've seen basis increase 77 cents from the beginning of 2021 to now, uh, which is which is a pretty remarkable increase. Um, and when you put it in context of some of the other uh, kind of quote unquote shocks that we've seen last several years, whether it's the pandemic or the 2019 planting issues, I mean, ethanol plant basis is very strong relative to uh, some of the previous information that's on the chart. Now, 
as you alluded to, right, uh, we've seen that price of, of ethanol go above the price of gasoline. We've seen those margins at ethanol plants dip. So where is this going in the future? I, you know, it's kind of hard to say, but at least where we're at presently, uh, ethanol plants, you know, are definitely being competitive in the terms of the way they're, they're bidding for corn. So I think what's going on is as gasoline usage goes up uh, to meet the mandates, we're seeing people continue to bid strongly for, for corn going into these ethanol plants. So to me, it probably hinges pretty much on what happens with respect to travel demand uh, here in the U.S. Uh, if we see ongoing strength in travel demand, which appears to be the case right now, mm -hmm. so I mean, I don't see any indication that that's backing off. Um, that suggests maybe we'll continue to see those ethanol production numbers remain above year-ago levels, which suggests ongoing, you know, relative strength in, in the, uh, the ethanol plant basis. I don't see a, a good reason for that to disappear in the short run. So in the past uh, couple of webinars, we've talked a lot about, you know, whether or not we could see an end-of-marketing-year pop in basis. And I don't think we put any of those charts in today. but. Um, just let's revisit that a little bit sure. because there have been some years where it got pretty crazy, right? Yeah, well, and you know, it's a little, <laughs> it's a little bit challenging. So again, I talked about why I didn't show the nearby uh, basis charts. So as we kind of roll futures contracts, and so you know, recently we've rolled out of July into the next nearby contract for corn would be September, and that September contract was trading at a pretty big discount relative to July. That's what the, the market was giving us. And so when you roll out, you kind of see basis increase just mathematically, right? Basis is cash price minus futures price. So uh, as that future price dropped, as we rolled to that next contract, basis is really strong right now, right? Like if you look at corn basis bids, uh, they're somewhere in the ballpark of a dollar a lot of places, which uh, even historically speaking is strong. Uh, the question that you have to ask yourself is kind of, you know, what, what's going on there as it relates to, um, you know, the, the futures uh, market maybe wasn't giving us the, the uh, futures price that uh, a lot of local bidders are thinking uh, was needed to, to kind of get corn out of the bins or anything that's left. And so, you know, uh, we, we've hit or exceeded the targets that we had put out there, but I think that had more to what, do what was going on on the future side in, in um um, than, than what's going on on the basis side. It's kind of a function of, you know, both of those things. So, um, you know, certainly there are opportunities. Basis is hot right now. But, again, the, the futures price is relatively lower than where it has been in the past several months as we've rolled to that next nearby contract. And so you kind of, the cash price really hasn't changed, I guess, is the point that I'm trying to make here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, cash bids have stayed relatively constant, and basis has been what's been used to make up for that, that drop yeah. in futures. So, you know, thinking about what might happen in August, I guess we just want to point out to our viewers and our listeners that it's going to be a challenge to anticipate what's going to happen there, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to be pretty volatile. There might be another pop out there in terms of basis, but as you stand here today, particularly as we look at prospects for good crop development here in the Eastern Corn Belt, the odds probably don't favor it this year. Is that, do you agree with that? Yeah, locally, based on all the information we have and the fact that we're in a pretty kind of strong, we're depending on weather at this point in the year, uh, I, I, locally, I, I don't see much chance that we're going to get basis pop much higher than it already is. Um, That's kind of where I wind up. Yeah. I guess we'll find out in about a month if, sure. we're, if we're right. But okay. <laughs> 
So you've taken a look at new crop pricing opportunities. Yeah, so we've been pushing this, you know, obviously for a while uh, with the strong prices that we've been seeing, you know, getting people to start thinking about some new crop opportunities or at least, you know, get in the mindset of, of thinking about what's out there. So this morning I pulled off uh, the uh, new crop December corn futures. We're at $5.43 a bushel. Um, I adjusted that for an expected corn basis. I calculated that using the crop basis tool. You could kind of use information in your own region. I use central Indiana just kind of a, a, a middle point there. That's about 15 under. So that would put you at a cash price of $5.28. And so kind of to, to put that into perspective, I, I threw a couple charts in here to just kind of get us thinking and, and, and maybe go through a little bit of a, a, a mental marketing exercise. And so this chart here is new crop December corn futures uh, going back to last fall. So December 21 going all the way back to the fall of 2020. And obviously we all know we've had a run up in, in prices here over uh, the last year or so. But what I really want to focus on is the last three or four months going back to, you know, end of April, beginning of May. And you can just see there's just been immense volatility in those markets with ups and downs. Uh, and so clearly, um, you know, we're not at the highs that we saw uh, in the last uh, several months, but don't let that cloud your judgment on the sense of what a $5 and 43 cent uh, futures price. And then again, adjusted for basis, um, you know, that $5 and 30 cent or so uh, cash price uh, is in terms of profitable, right? So Michael calculates uh, our um, kind of break even levels on corn, and that's certainly above most people's <laughs> well above most Definitely. people's break evens. And so, you know, I think Jim, you made the point earlier, right? If you look at those bars on the chart here, you know, just because you missed the five or six or 10 days that were at the top of that market, don't let that kind of uh, mess with the mental accounting of, well, I missed the peak, I don't wanna sell anything. Um, you know, if you haven't made any moves, we're still at a point where I think that folks should be locking in at least small portions of that new crop to lock in some of those uh, profitable levels because as in, I want to show on the next chart, there's still downside risk in these markets, right? Yeah, let's talk about that downside risk. So yeah. explain how you're computing this or how you arrived at this. So this is the uh, FarmDoc team over at University of Illinois has uh, what they call this price discovery tool. And so this uses futures prices and option prices to kind of um, uh, quantify kind of the risk that's in the market currently. And then they basically put a distribution. So based on where today, so this, you know, it's constantly kind of updated whenever you go to the site, wherever the current futures price is for corn, it gives you a distribution of where that price could be come this fall at expiration when that, when that contract goes off the board. And so to calculate that, I just said, okay, well, if today's uh, corn price is there in that $5.43 range, uh, based on the current information that the market knows, you plug that into the tool and it can tell you kind of what are the chances that the price goes up or down in a certain direction. And I said, okay, well, what kind of downside risk are we facing here? So what is the chances that we see uh, corn futures price decrease by say a dollar before we get to the fall? And if you plug that into the tool, it tells you that you know, there's a 20% chance, a one in five chance that that corn futures price can go from where it is today, $5.43, down to $4.43 or lower uh, by this fall. And so, you know, as you think about kind of, uh, you know, probabilities and, and the chances of that happening, 
you know, there's, there's serious downside risk. The market could absolutely move strongly in that direction. You know, a dollar move, which again, I just showed you, a dollar move is nothing these <laughs> days, but there's a good chance of that being able to happen uh, between now and fall time. And again, I showed last month some seasonality charts. We're certainly in the time of year where we start to see prices revert towards those harvest time lows. And so that's certainly the, the trend that I would expect to see here over uh, the next several weeks. Just to reiterate what, what uh, Nathan's been talking about here, uh, you, you look at cash prices, let's assume a similar basis, you're looking at the difference between 530 and 440 corn. Uh, you know, there, there's a 25% chance that cash corn could be below 440. Uh, that's getting closer to break evens. And so I just encouraging people to think about some marketing strategies now, uh, just in case that we, we do see that 450 corn. And, and to maybe turn that around a little bit, Michael, you got an opportunity today to lock in corn prices that are probably in the ballpark of a dollar a bushel above break-even. Yes. I like to think of it yes. that way, right? That's a very good way to Locking in a positive yeah. margin yes. of a dollar a bushel. And that's not very, that's, that's pretty unusual. There's not many unusual. times in, in history you can you're do, able that. To do that. Yeah. 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 So that's an important point to remember. All right, let's kind of summarize what USDA had to say on the soybean side. Um, they reduced their estimated imports by 15 million bushels to just 20 million bushels total, so down from 35. They reduced the soybean crush estimate for the 2020 crop year by 5 million bushels. That puts the crush at 2.17 billion bushels. Um, they reduced exports by a small amount, 10 million bushels, to 2.27 billion bushels. Um, left the carryover unchanged at 135 million bushels, and that's equal to just below 3% uh, of usage. And then they reduced the marketing year average soybean price estimate by 20 cents a bushel down to 11.25. Um, on the 21 crop balance sheet, no change really in the balance sheet projection because there really wasn't any change in the acreage on the June 30th acreage report relative to what the planning intentions report suggested. They did lower the marketing year average soybean price projection for the 21 crop by 15 cents to 13.70. On the world side, um, no change in Brazil's current year estimated production. They did reduce Argentina by about a half a million metric tons. Um, no change in their preliminary estimate of Brazil or Argentina's uh, harvest that will take place in early 2022. And they reduced the current year estimate of China's imports by 2 million metric tons and reduced their forecast for next year's uh, imports by 1 million metric tons. So not a lot of change, a, a number of small changes, but not a lot of big changes and still some question marks on, on the, uh, the world side. Um, you know, one of the things I guess we should point out, especially on the, on the soybean side, but also on the corn side, there's a lot of estimates out there suggesting the South American production actually be smaller than what USDA is projecting. And so it's uh, still a little bit of a wild card there. And we, and we were talking earlier, Nathan, about you know, what would cause a pop to happen in August. Yep. It would be largely probably driven by a, a lack of supplies coming out of South America and the U.S. becoming the residual supplier earlier than expected or earlier than normal before the new harvest in the U.S. is available. And that's what happened previously. We saw that pop in export demand. We haven't seen any sign of that materializing so far. Um, but that's probably the, the, maybe the concern, I suppose, or at least the speculation that, that some people might have out there. Um, if you look at soybean exports to China versus exports to all destinations, obviously it's been had, had a huge impact with the growth in our soybean exports to China. Um, we're at total exports so far through the end of June at about 2.15 billion bushels. Uh, just a little under 1.3 billion bushels of that went to China. 
Um, if you look at those soybean exports, though, in June, they really slowed down. And that's one of the things, I think, that encouraged USDA to pull back a little bit on their 2020 crop year uh, soybean export uh, forecast, how slow soybean exports were in the month of June, and probably continuing it here in the, in the early part of July. If you look at the export projections um, relative to what we've exported so far, We've exported about 95% of what USDA is projecting for exports. However, you have to remember that on this report, they did pull back the export forecast a little bit to help uh, that 95% look a little better than it would have otherwise. I think without that, we would have been about 92 or 93%. So um, can we hit the target uh, with just 5% left? Well, yeah, pretty good chance we can. Uh, are we going to uh, exceed that? Uh, maybe not unless... Brazil gets out of the market in the month of August would be my guess at, at this point. Um, if you look at soybean ending stocks forecast on a month-to-month -month basis like we did for corn, the picture's not exactly the same. Uh, in both cases, those uh, carryover ending stocks came down sharp, the projections of them came down sharply as we headed through the 2020 marketing year. But the difference is, as you look at the late winter, early spring time frame, uh, on the corn side, those ending stocks estimates kept coming down. On the soybean side, they stabilized, and here the last two months actually got bumped up just a little bit. Uh, so a little different scenario uh, than what we saw on the corn side, but still a very tight stocks estimate, right? You can't, uh, I, I, I was looking at uh, one of the analyst reports here not too long ago, and, and the comment was, you know, you can't pull ending stocks below 100 million bushels in this country, right? That's, that's clearly a pipeline requirement. So we're hovering near the pipeline requirement with respect to soybean stocks being carried over into the 2021 crop year. Um, and if you look at it as a, as a percentage of usage, this year's projection just under 3%. The initial projections for the 2021 crop year going into the 2022 crop year, not much higher, uh, currently about 3.5%. So that's probably going to change multiple times between now and then but it suggests a very tight supply situation in soybeans continuing, not just this crop year, but into the next crop year. That's truly amazing to see the, t the stocks that tight uh, for the next year. I mean, and, and the reason that's gonna, that's reasons that's, that's probably gonna be borne out is, is there's gonna be really stiff competition with corn. You know, given that corn's relatively tight stocks too, there's gonna be a lot of competition in corn and soybeans uh, in 2022. And you're going to talk about more, that more later with yeah. respect to profitability. So we'll look at that a little more uh, carefully with respect to what that looks like for the next crop year. On a world basis, world soybean stocks have really come down. Uh, going back to the 2018 marketing year, we were up to 33%. Now we're down to roughly 25%. And really no projected change of any consequence going into the 2021 crop year. So relatively tight. That's not quite as tight as we were back in 2012 and 2013 when we got down to 22 and 23 percent, but it's pretty close and does suggest that there continues to be ongoing pressure with respect to yield and production this year. And the yield on the soybean side is more up in the air uh, than it was or than it is on the corn side. You know, if you go back and think about the acreage, we were talking about the Dakotas, Minnesota, uh, and Iowa. Um, uh, those, those states combined are uh, let me think about this for a second, up in, in the ballpark, give or take a couple of percentage, of about one-third of our soybean acreage in those states. Um, so really, that won't be determined for several more weeks. Uh, traditionally, uh, August is typically the, the main month that you think about with respect to crop conditions on soybeans and impacting yields. So certainly a lot of uncertainty and some risk uh, given the large percentage of acreage in those states. 
Now, Nathan, you've taken a look at the basis on the soybean side, and it, this chart looks different than what you showed us on corn. That's right. So we got a, a quite a bit different situation going on with soybean basis. So again, I, I'm looking uh, right into um, uh, kind of deferred soybean basis relative to that nearby contract. So uh, we're looking at uh, basis relative to the August 21 contract throughout the crop marketing year. Um, and we're looking at central Indiana. And so you, what, what we've seen here over the past six to eight weeks is a pretty steady uh, decline in soybean basis. Um, and so where soybean basis was as high as $1.50, so $1.50 over futures uh, back in the first week or two of May, uh, we're now only about 55 cents uh, above, uh, excuse me, $1.53 above historical average basis, not above futures. Um, it's come down to being only about 55 cents above that historical average. Some of that is because there tends to be a, a positive kind of trend in, in soybean basis even into those summer months. And so, you know, the, the historical average is higher today than it was back in May. Um, but a lot of that has been due to the decline in, in uh, uh, basis levels this year. And so, again, you know, as we've talked about previously, we've kind of looked at different thresholds for what uh, the potential for soybean basis might be this summer. Uh, we've had strong basis all year, uh, and so you know we've we've had some pretty favorable basis levels, but we never saw those late summer kind of pops that we had talked about previously materialize. And if anything, we've seen soybean uh, basis really moving in the other direction. So an interesting development you and I were talking about, I guess a week or so ago, is the fact that as we look at some of the bids and some of the elevators and terminals here in the Eastern Corn Belt. Instead of using, as you did here, August as your baseline for establishing your bids, some of them are actually using new crop futures. They're using November futures to compute their um, uh, summer bids here. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, at first glance, it's a very strong basis relative to, to November. But it's an interesting development. It's not one that we see. I couldn't remember, truthfully, the last time yeah. we saw this. So. Let's talk about that a little bit. What's, what's going on? Yeah, so it, it kind of caught us off guard, right? Because when I went and was looking at some bids, I was, you know, I, I tend to think in terms of basis uh, with the basis tool and was comparing some of those bids to what was what I was seeing in the tool, and they were quite off. And so, you know, we finally caught on to, and, and, and noticed what they were doing, um, using those new crop futures to set those summer bids and then using basis to kind of make up the difference of how they wanted to pull in corn or corn or soybeans, because um, it was on both, I believe, mm -hmm. was it not? Mostly I noticed on soybeans, mostly but I think some of it was on corn as well. I think well. a little bit of both, but you're right. I think you're right. It was mostly on soybeans. Um, and so really, you know, thinking through what was going on there, um, you know, it's, it's clearly an indication that those buyers are saying, um, you know, we're, we're thinking about new crop. We're thinking about what's going to happen uh, with the new crop corn. We're not as worried about as uh, uh, what's going on in terms of old crop, um, what's left. We're more worried about the conditions of the new crop, right? Uh, at least that's how I interpret it. I don't know if you saw... Some other things to... to yeah, I, I, well, I think the same thought, and then I may be taking that a step further. I think what's going on is that some of the merchandisers are worried that with the soybean stocks as tight as they are, they're worried about a squeeze with respect to deliverable supplies at the delivery points sure. that are in the futures contract. And so the easy way to get around that is just say, well, we're going we're gonna to focus on what the new crop is yeah. doing because we think that will be reflective of kind of general supply demand conditions not just what's taking place at those delivery points. But I, but I agree with you. It's, it also suggests that um, they feel like they're not having much trouble fulfilling their needs. Right. So that doesn't bode well for 
seeing additional strength in soybean basis, even though the projected carryover is as tight as it is. Which is kind of an interesting dynamic, right? Yeah, yeah. So then, uh, again, kind of shifting gears and thinking about new crop opportunities on soybeans, we've kind of, again, been pushing this, kind of getting people to think about uh, what those opportunities might look like. This morning, soybean, um, new crop November soybeans were trading for 1361. Again, making an adjustment for basis. I'm using the basis tool in, in central Indiana as kind of the region that I'm looking at. You would use whatever basis would be relevant for you. That puts us at an expected uh, harvest cash price of $13.31. And, and again, the story is very similar to what I said for corn. Um, on one hand, you know, that's certainly not as high as we've seen that number as we put this chart up every month in our webinar in, in the past several months. Um, but when you compare that to, to break evens, right, we're still looking at very profitable levels. And so uh, as you kind of make your kind of decisions and you're evaluating some of those opportunities, uh, it's not too late to act, I guess is the point. I think some people may have think, well, I missed it, you know, it's too late, I'm not gonna do anything. And I think that that would be, in my opinion, the wrong mentality, right? Still maybe take some uh, positions, um, and again, not, not on everything, like we've said, the, the the stock's conditions on soybeans is very tight. I know there's a lot of people with a lot of uh, um, uh, very, very bullish on soybeans, and, and I think there's reason to be. Um, but again, as I'm gonna show in some of these next couple of charts, there's still downside risk uh, in the soybean market. So this is just, again, uh, new crop November soybean futures going back to the fall of last year. Uh, and again, we've seen the run up, we've seen the volatility in recent months. Uh, that's not news to anybody. It, the, the scale of some of these swings has been pretty phenomenal to me uh, as you think about you know, shifts of a dollar to two dollars in just a couple of weeks uh, and, and not just once, right? It's not like the market broke and it was done. It came back and broke again. And so you know, we, we've seen a lot of movement here. And so again, uh, even though uh, you might not have hit one of those uh, peaks in the market, uh, the, the $13.61 futures price we're looking at, and again, converting that to a cash price of somewhere in the $13.30 cash price, you know, this is a very, very good price, well within kind of the average of what we've seen over the last three or four, uh, two or three months. Uh, and so, you know, don't, don't let uh, the fact that you missed the high, uh, let the opportunity to, to lock in those profitable levels slip away. Yeah, if, if I was a technical analyst, which I'm not, but if I was, <laughs> I would uh, look at the fact that uh, we're in the ballpark of about a 50% retracement, right? So right. that's something a lot of the technicals like to, to look at. But um, you know, if, if you think about it from a downside risk perspective, you took a look at that as you did on the corn side. That's right. So using kind of the, using the same tool and the same kind of framework for thinking about what the downside risk is here on, on soybean prices. Again, if we're, uh, you know, in that $13 and 60 cent uh, range of a price today, what's the potential for that to go down uh, as we approach expiration of that contract in November? And so according to you know, all the information that's pulled into this tool, uh, the chances of a, a, a dollar decline in that price, so from 1360 down to 1260, is about 33% chance. So there's a, a third chance that we could see that price decrease by as much as a dollar. Um, you know, taking that a step further, I think there's about a 15% chance that that price could go down uh, by $2 or more. That would put us at that $11.60 uh, $11.60 uh, price range. And so um, you know, those are big, big swings uh, with relatively high probabilities associated with them. And so 
again, I, you know, from my own kind of personal view, and again, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of people, I'm not the only one saying this, the, the stock situation on soybeans is obviously much tighter. Everybody knows that, and so there probably is a, a little more uh, upside potential there, but still, there's downside risk, and so I think that um, there's certainly still opportunities on some portion of that new crop to be able to lock in some of these levels um, at the prices that we're seeing today, because they could certainly go down. Michael, coming back and thinking about yeah. what those break-evens are, what, what are you currently projecting if there's a break-even break on soybeans? Break-evens for a lot of people are below $11. And so, you know, $13 is a good soybean price, that's, yeah. that's for sure. Uh, and, and let's talk a little bit more about that volatility. Why is there so much volatility? Let's circle back to what we talked about. This is a weather market. Uh, yield could be a little higher than expected. That's the downside, what, yep. what we're looking at here. Uh, yield could be... If the yield is lower, uh, we're looking at the, the, the upside here. And so just remember that weather could go either way. Speaking of that, you took a look at the uh, crop condition ratings. Very similar story to what we saw in corn. I mean, Indiana's running quite a bit of, ahead of its five-year average and the 18 major states with, with, with a really low uh, good to excellent ratings occurring in that North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota. Uh, North Dakota and South Dakota are even more important when it comes to soybeans, and so, uh, and so that's very important to watch. Uh, you know, to see what those crop progress reports look like uh, in, in the next couple of weeks. And that's going to be major uh, uh, for people that are, that are watching this market real closely. Yeah, so we've got about one-third of our acreage that people are really watching pretty closely in terms of what the weather patterns are. And so, all right, you've taken a look at uh, income projections. Yeah, the income projections are similar to what we saw last month or we saw even in, in May. However, the income projections are down a little bit in 21 with, with a little bit of weakness in, in corn and soybean uh, price projections compared to what they were a, a month ago. Probably the biggest change, though, is occurring in, in 2022. 2022 looks like it's going to be about the same as 2020. That's not necessarily bad news. Both of those are about right at what the average has been since 2007. A lot of good years in there, uh, and so there certainly aren't uh, bad years. Uh, but but 22 does not look like it's going to be as good as 21. And just just to remind uh, uh, the viewer or, or the, those listening on the podcast that uh, uh, the reason why 21 is pretty high, it's not just that we've got fairly strong prices this fall. It's also the prices uh, that we received after the first year for the 2020 crop. Uh, so it's a combination of those two things that make makes 21 uh, look pretty good. So, you know, you and I do the Ag Economy Barometer, Michael, and I look at this chart and I see how sharply down 2022 is relative to 2021. Yeah. And that might explain some of the weakness or softness we've seen in the Ag Economy Barometer, that sentiment index recently. Yeah, I think that's, that's part of it. I think we're, gonna, we're also going to talk a little bit about uh, price inflation. I think that's also uh, playing, yeah. playing uh, uh, in terms of the sentiment. Uh, looking at cash rents, there's still very strong upward pressure on cash rents. Uh, the, the forecast for uh, corn and soybean uh, net, net return to land is, is down about $50 uh, from June, but it's still very high by historical standards. It, it's very, very similar. It's, it's lower, but it, it, it's, 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 it's similar to 2011, uh, which was the highest uh, in, in that 2007 to the current period. So very strong uh, net return prospects for 21. Uh, that looks, looks like they're also going to be pretty strong in 2022. Uh, if you look at the long run uh, uh, net return to land, uh, inflation adjusted since 1960, I'm going to go back a ways here, but if you go back to 1960 to today, uh, the average inflation adjusted net return to land is 250. 
Uh, and so 310 uh, that we're currently projecting for 2022, that looks pretty good. And certainly the 21 looks pretty good. And so that's why we're seeing this this strong upward uh, up, upward pressure on cash rent. And like I've been telling uh, telling people, when you have when you have three years in a row of very strong returns, uh, like we're seeing here for 2020, 2021, and 2022, it's the it's the perf- perfect uh, avenue for large increases in cash rent. Uh, if you go back, if you go back to that 2007, 2013 period, uh, 10, 11, and 12, all three of those years had cash rent increases above 10 percent. Uh, we could see that for for 2022. Uh, looking at the difference between corn and soybeans, I, I, all, all, all I'm really I, I want to talk about here is the fact that there's going to be a lot of competition uh, for acres between corn and soybeans. The, that profitability goes from slightly more profitable from corn to slightly more profitable, profitable to soybeans, depending on that relative price. Uh, but both of those are going to look quite attractive from a, from a net return standpoint. It's not just corn or just soybeans like it was uh, during that 13 to 18 period where soybeans were, were more profitable and then before that corn was more profitable. We're entering a different environment where both of them are gonna be very competitive. Uh, the 21, uh, for, in terms of 21, it looks like it's gonna be about the same profitability for both. So looking at 2022, we're in that time frame when people are starting to do some uh, input selection for next year, especially on the seeding side, especially on corn hybrids. And so as you think about your production costs for 2022, one of the things people are talking about, in addition to potential rises in, in for example, seed corn prices, also this run-up we've seen in fertilizer values. Yeah, and I would, I would be, I would uh, express, uh, uh, ca- I'd be cautious if I was thinking about continuous corn in 2022 for, for, for various reasons. First of all, uh, if you look at downside risk from a price standpoint going way out into the December 2022 uh, c- contract for corn and, and November uh, for soybeans, there, there seems to be more downside risk for corn. Uh, and, and, and so if we, if, both, if we see both lower prices for both corn and soybeans, I think, I think soybeans are going to look more attractive, quite frankly, uh, because if you, corn price, you know, corn price uh, is going to drop below the break even. There's a chance it could drop below the break-even, a much larger chance than soybeans, and so, uh, and so I, that's a caught, that's a, a something to be cautious about with continuous corn. But also, like you said, the input costs. We're looking at increases in cash rent, which would affect both of them, but increases in possible increase in fertilizer fertilizer prices. That's that that weighs more heavily with with corn. Uh, obviously, corn seed is, is is more expensive than soybean seed, and so there's there's inflation risk there. Uh, also, fuel fuel uh, it impacts corn a little bit more than soybeans, and so there's just a lot of reasons why I would be very cautious at at, at this point uh, of growing much continuous corn. So, except you know, when as you go further in the western corn belt, like Nebraska, Nebraska usually has two to one corn, but even Iowa and Illinois, I, I think it's going to be more. 50, it's going to be closer to 50 or 52 percent uh, corn rather rather than that 55 percent or above that we sometimes see. So when you estimated returns for 2022, what did you do with some of those input costs? How did you factor those in? Uh, uh, that's difficult to do. I certainly probably have a better uh, a better uh, a forecast for, for uh, cash rent. I did, I did expect those to increase 5% each year. That might not be enough for 2022. 
so I probably wasn't cautious enough there. I did have some uh, increases factored in using some long-run forecasts from the University of Missouri Fabry. Uh, they come up with prices paid indices for the next 10 years, and I use their, their estimates for the next year uh, to try to come up with some estimates. And so I didn't use flat costs. That's very important. I did build in some, some inflation prices paid. Whether I built in enough, who knows? Um, all, all I want to talk a little bit about is, is how that compares to the June. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, certainly, corn looked a little bit, little better in, in June uh, for 21, uh, but the 2022 story hasn't changed. Uh, it, 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 both, both corn and soybeans are going to be very competitive in 2022. I did look at what would happen to uh, 21 and 22 harvest future if uh, uh, to net return to land if if we we were seeing 21 and 22 uh, lower harvest futures prices. And, and so, so to bring that back to perspective, this is looking at the price discovery tool from sure. Illinois and looking at those possibility of a significant decline, that 25% chance of a 13% decline in Dease corn, 18% decline in Dease 22 corn price, and yeah. then it's similar on, on the soybean side, right? For those that might be a little little familiar with that tool, and I encourage I encourage our listener to take a look at that tool. It's, it's very useful if you're looking at uh, futures prices and the band around uh, band around futures prices. I was looking at that 25 percentile. So what is that? You know, that's a, that means there's a 25 percent chance that corn or soybean prices could be that low. And so we're not not talking about trivial percentages here, uh, trivial percentage uh, changes here. Uh, and of course that change is 21 and 22 mightily. Uh, for 21, that, that, that would show us a net return to land of $304 rather than $384. So that's an $80 drop. Again, uh, making thinking about your marketing strategies yeah. because certainly that's possible uh, to see that $80 drop. Um, and, and, then, and then 2022, it also it, it brings, that, uh, it brings that net return to land uh, below uh, 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 projected cash rent by about $40. And, and so the main reason I, I went through this exercise is, is, is when you're negotiating cash rent uh, for 22, just be a little bit cautious. Uh, you need to think about not only what the 2020, 2020 returns were and the 21 net returns, but think about what 22 might look like and, 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 and even further than that. I mean, we're, we, there's still some chance for some downside in terms of net returns, 22 and beyond. And so let's don't be too aggressive. It's not, I, I think we're, in, in other words, we're in a different situation, I think. Uh, and maybe you guys will uh, argue with me on this, and, and you're willing, you're, you're uh, more than, uh, I, I, I would accept an argument and, and maybe argue with you about this. I don't think we're in that 2007 to 2013 period. We're not in that window where we saw several years in a row of very strong returns. I don't, I'm not convinced we're there. And so, and so that means a little bit being a little bit more cautious with with cash rent uh, in 22 than than you probably were back in 10, 11, 12. So I think that truthfully leads us into a question that a, a, one of our potential viewers sent us in before uh, the webinar today, which was, what do we think is going to happen longer term with respect to demand from China? Because if you think about contrasting what's going on mm -hmm. now versus that 07 to 12 or 13 time frame. That 07 to 13 time frame was characterized largely by a strength in demand yes. from multiple sources. Part of it was from China, part of it was, was domestic. And the current environment is mostly characterized by strength in demand from China Yes. with a little bit of uh, uh, maybe crops not being quite as large as we thought in the U.S., so a little bit of supply side issue there and definitely some supply side issues in South America. 
I agree with you. It's not the same as what we saw before. And the odds of this lasting as long as what we saw in that 07 to 12 or 13 time frame um, don't appear very good. Yeah. There's still some legs there. I mean, it, it, it's obviously there's a lot of uncertainty. I think the corn in particular, with, you know, China historically has grown all the, all, all the corn they need. Uh, for their livestock industry, and, and so the, the question is, uh, are they going to come close to returning to that uh, in the next year or two? I, I think as a, I can, I'm a little bit of a naysayer there. Uh, as, their, as their population demands more uh, meat in the diet, uh, they want a better diet, uh, their, their, their demand for livestock is going to increase, and maybe they can't produce enough corn. Uh, for the, in, in not only this year, but maybe uh, two, three years down the road. I think that's an open question. Whether whether they import as much as they did this year, probably not. But I don't think it's necessarily going to go back to zero. I'd like to get uh, you guys' thought on that. I, I would agree with that. I don't. I don't think it's going to go back to zero. But I don't think we can count on the level no. of demand we've gotten over the last year or so. No, that's probably not going to happen. What's your perspective? Yeah, I, I agree. It probably doesn't go back to zero, but to sustain where we're at uh, seems unlikely. So we talked a little bit about this earlier, Michael, but we wanted to share some information we've gathered from producers, and that is uh, we've asked producers on the Ag Economy Barometer this last month what their perspective is on prices paid for farm inputs. And we gave them a little bit of history or perspective when we asked the question. We pointed out that over the last 10 years, the average price paid for farm inputs has increased by just less than 2%, about 1.8% per year. And using that as a frame of reference, we asked him, what do you think is going to happen during the next 12 months? And we were surprised by the responses. First of all, there's a lot of disparity there. Um, but the key point is a lot of producers are expecting quite a bit of price inflation with respect to farm inputs, right? Yeah, if you look at the 8 to 12% and over 12%, 8% would be four times that historical 10-year average, almost a third of the producers were expecting either, either over 8% in terms of uh, increases in prices paid. Uh, that's more than cash rent, I think. And so there, there's pressure on, on, a, on a lot of different cost items and, and that's, that's really reflected uh, in, in this question that we asked them. Uh, and so certainly uh, uh, inflation's a real concern uh, for agriculture producers right now. Is that going to make it necessarily unprofitable in 2022? Well, that depends on what the prices are. Uh, you look at the current uh, the current futures prices, uh, e even, even in building in some of a fairly large uh, price inflation, you're still looking at a pretty good situation for 22. But it does indicate that you need to pay close attention to your budgets, right, and manage those costs because particularly as you get on the upper end of that, and some of the things in agriculture, we also asked a question about uh, consumer price inflation as well, and the re responses weren't quite as positive as what we're picking up here. But nevertheless, on the ag side, we've already seen some significant increases, and if we see these compound, it, it starts to really uh, eat into those margins, right? And as you know, I get excited about crop budgets. I update them uh very frequently, uh, let's put it that way. And for the last five years, it's been kind of boring, if you if you will. There really hasn't been much price inflation at all. The 10-year average is 1.8%. It's almost zero in the last five years. And so really, if you did a budget two years ago, you could trot that out You trot that out this, this spring and it wouldn't have been too much different. That's not going to be the case moving forward. We really need to really need to uh, uh, you know sharpen our pencil and look at those enterprise budgets when you're looking at the relative profitability for corn, soybeans, and, and, and wheat in, in so parts of the country because it's a different world. 
Uh, we're looking at inflation in, you know, in different inputs, and which are, are going to impact corn probably more than soybeans. And so it's going to be very, very important to, uh, to, to develop enterprise budgets by field. So you're, you've just built some demand to, for the next webinar when we'll have updated crop budgets yes. because I think your projections on the 2022 crop are going to change as we get closer yes. and get a little better grip on what some of those input prices and, and might be. And next month we'll know what the uh, Purdue uh, cash rent and land value survey, we'll know the results for that. And so we'll know what the cash rent uh, was in twenty. Yeah, that's a good point. And we'll have a webinar to discuss that yeah. in, in some detail as well. So that wraps up our discussion for today. Our next webinar will be on Friday, August 13th. The details for that will be available on our website, purdue.edu slash commercial ag. And with that, I want to thank my colleagues, Nathan Thompson and Michael Langemeyer, for joining us today. And on behalf of the Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minner.